This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning, and welcome to the second of Rand's Call with the Experts Summer Series. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. These calls are one of the many benefits of supporting Rand. Today, our topic is what's next for Korea after the recent summit between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong un. Joining us are three of RAND's most experienced international and defense policy experts. Ambassador Jim Dobbins holds the Distinguished Chair in Diplomacy and Security at RAND. He's held high-level posts in the Obama, Bush, and Clinton administrations, most recently a special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Bruce Bennett is a senior international and defense researcher and an expert in Northeast Asian military issues, having visited Korea more than 100 times and having been at RAND more than 40 years. And Mike Mazar is a senior political scientist. He came to RAND from the U.S. National War College, where he was professor and associate dean of academics. He's also worked on Capitol Hill and is a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. morning. Today's call is scheduled for 45 minutes. It is being recorded and will be be made into a podcast on RAND.org. So now let's begin. Jim, maybe you could remind us of the commitments uh, made in the joint statement issued after last month's summit. I'm wondering how those commitments compare with previous agreements between North Korean leaders and the U.S. Well, there were two summits. The first in April was a summit between the North and South Korean leaders. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in what was called the Panmunjom, which is where they met, declaration. That was a fairly lengthy document. It contained promises and commitments to do a number of things, mostly steps to improve cooperation, reduce tensions, begin uh, more economic and social people-to-people exchanges, and resolve some of the longstanding issues between North and South Korea. It concluded with a commitment to pursue denuclearization. All of these steps had been promised before by Kim Jong-un's grandfather and father Mm -hmm. over the years. And so this was, in effect, a renewal of commitment of promises that had been made before, but for the most part, never fulfilled. The Trump-Kim communique issued after the Singapore summit was much shorter, and it essentially endorsed the the contents of the longer Panmunjom communique employed the same term, that is to say, working toward a peace regime between the two Koreas, as opposed to a peace treaty or a peace agreement. And its contents otherwise were, on the one hand, a promise uh, by uh, Trump to provide uh, security assurances to North Korea, and a promise by uh, North Korea, by Kim Jong-un, to pursue denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Both of these have been promised before by President Clinton, by President Bush, by President Obama, and now by President Trump, and uh, also by, as I said, uh, Kim Jong-un's father uh, and grandfather. Um, The the practical uh, exchange, as opposed to these long-term distant aspirations, was that Kim Jong-un continued uh, a moratorium on nuclear and missile tests. So they're not testing nuclear weapons and they're not testing missiles, and they haven't been doing that for uh, some months. And in exchange, Trump promised uh, a moratorium on joint military exercises by the United States and South Korea. 
So in, in terms of the immediate impact, uh, those were the results of the summit. And Bruce, uh, what, what North Korean actions have we seen since then? Well, probably the key was the uh, meeting between Secretary of State Pompeo and Kim Jong-chol, the senior representative of uh, the North Korean government for dealing with uh, the current negotiations. That occurred last weekend. Um, there was a significant degree of disagreement, apparently, at that uh, meeting. In particular, uh, the U.S. was trying to move towards a what might be called a package agreement, a broad effort to move towards North Korea having no nuclear weapons, and with the North Koreans basically saying, no, we're not going to make such commitments, we're not going to move ahead in that kind of direction, we're going to want to go more slowly. First thing, though, the Singapore agreement from, from June 12th between President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un said we're going to build a modified relationship and then we're going to have a peace agreement and we need to do those things in sequence before we go on to nuclear issues. Uh, the North Koreans also got pretty cranky afterwards and called the Americans gangsters for trying to talk about denuclearization. So there was a degree of unhappiness. Now, Secretary Pompeo did indicate that he thought in the discussions he made some progress with the North Koreans, um, but we still don't see concrete actions towards denuclearization that have resulted since the Singapore Agreement. Mike, what do you reckon is going on behind the scenes diplomatically here? Uh, well, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I think Bruce has summarized uh, the, the basic contours. Um, the the critical factor for a while has been what the exact uh, design of denuclearization the United States is talking about. Um, in public, for some time, U.S. policy has been built on this idea of uh, relatively rapid, if not immediate, denuclearization of North Korea. Just about nobody who watches North Korea thinks that that is feasible. Um, and the North Koreans, the Chinese, and then recently the United States have hinted at more of a process, more of a drawn-out uh, effort at denuclearization that would unfold in stages. Uh, it is not clear if there is any actual roadmap for what that would look like that has been developed by the United States. It appears that the United States and North Korea are not in active discussions of the specific components of such a phased approach. And as Bruce uh, laid out, one of the challenges is whether North Korea is going to try to put all of the political and economic concessions first before we even begin that kind of a denuclearization process. And if that happens, I think these negotiations are going to grind to a halt fairly quickly. Jim? Yeah, I think that the basic issue at this point is sequencing. So the U.S. position is you denuclearize and then we drop sanctions and provide other benefits. The North Korean position is the opposite. You, really, you drop sanctions, you provide these other benefits, and then we'll denuclearize. Um, uh, clearly, uh, what you're groping toward is some step-by-step -step process in which we do some things they want right away, and they do some things we want right away, and then we gradually, step-by-step, step, move forward. This has been tried before. In the end, it's never fully succeeded. They have taken some steps. They dismantled some nuclear facilities. We did provide some assistance and relieve some sanctions. But the steps became so complicated, and the obstacles to moving forward became so uh, significant 
and frankly, North Korean cheating and U.S. failure to deliver on some of the promises uh, condemned these efforts uh, before under previous administrations. So we're in that same kind of uh, process of trying to define a step-by-step process that leads to denuclearization and normalization of relations and improved economic and other contacts. But uh, but getting there is a multi-year process that contains immense complexities. And it's not multi-year because it technically has to be so. It's multi-year because there's not the trust, there's not the relationship established where the North feels comfortable surrendering what they think is their key to regime survival. And so... Which is the nuclear weapons. Which is the nuclear weapons. And so this will be a process which will require a whole aspect of, of uh, cooperation. The problem is the president has said that he will not relax the sanctions until the denuclearization is complete. And that is not what the North wants. Right. The North have said the opposite, that they won't start denuclearization until the sanctions have been released. So, yeah. so those are the opening positions. Loggerheads. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they open with incompatible positions, but that's, so does every negotiation. Mm. Where do you see things going from here? Uh, I, I see us starting down the same path that Clinton, Bush, and Obama tried. Uh, and the question is whether the two sides actually have sufficient commitment uh, and sufficient consistency and uh, diplomatic uh, skills to push it further than it's been pushed in the past. And I think one has to be somewhat pessimistic in that respect. Do you have particular advice for what the U.S. position might ought to be at this point? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bruce? <laughs> Very much so. I, I think as we look at this situation, we have to recognize that Kim is not just negotiating on nuclear weapons at this stage. He has a much broader agenda in mind. Um, when he gave his New Year's speech, which is his annual State of the Union address, he talked about reunification a dozen times, and he wasn't talking about rock-led reunification. Since that time, if you look at the rock South... being Republican. Uh, sorry, yes, Republic of Korea, the South Koreans. Yep. Um, since that time, South Korean public opinion has absolutely vaulted to trusting him. I mean, by early May, 77% of South Koreans said they would trust Kim Jong-un, whereas last December, it was in the 2% range. So he's really won a lot of public support in South Korea. He appears to be playing to the South Korean public support. And now the question is, do we play back in that uh, theater? Do we attempt to say, let's take some baby steps. Let's get you to do this. Let's get you to do that. Trying to motivate him by the reaction in South Korea about reasonableness of the actions we're asking him to take. For example, China asked the U.S. and South Korea to do a freeze for freeze. That was a freeze of the North Korean nuclear and missile tests for the U.S. suspension of exercises. Well, North Korea has not suspended its exercises. So one of the things President Trump could do is to ask Kim Jong-un now to reciprocate on the suspension of exercises. Could also tell him, look, you've probably produced five or six nuclear weapons from the beginning of the year. 
You're not denuclearizing. You're not even freezing. You're nuclearizing. So let's get you to surrender those nuclear weapons and disassemble them um, as the first step. Has that been asked? As far as I know, no, it has not. Mike, do you have any specific recommendations for uh, particular tidbits that might uh, be acceptable from Kim and that might move things along? Well, I think, uh, I mean, two things in terms of recommendations. One is I think it is time to broaden the aperture of our discussions with them. And in the past, U.S. policy, I think, has been a little bit prisoner to this idea of narrowly focusing on, on nuclear things and, and refusing to discuss issues like diplomatic relations or peace regime until that's resolved. I think putting them together makes some degree of sense. Um, I think there's sort of an obvious uh, first nuclear step uh, focused on North Korea's main nuclear facility at Yongbyon and some closures there. But my main concern right now is, as Bruce is implying with the South Korean position, the United States has managed to maneuver North Korea into a position where it's getting everything it wants and has no incentive to do anything. It is getting better relations with South Korea, the beginnings of discussion of improved economic relations with South Korea. China is relaxing enforcement of sanctions. Um, it has got a summit with the American president for the first time since the Korean War. So Military uh, exercises suspended. And, and suspension of U.S. military exercises, although that, that's sort of a cherry on top. Uh, so at this point... The wild card is where South Korea and China go, because it, since North Korea has very little incentive to compromise, one possible course of events is that North Korea will now try to string this out as long as possible, and at some point the United States will get very frustrated that it is not getting any nuclear concessions out of this process. At that moment, the United States is going to turn to South Korea and China and say, you know, we started this process, but North Korea is not giving us anything. You've got to help us put on return to maximum pressure. And it is not clear that China and South Korea would be willing to do that absent some radical North Korean provocations. If that is the case, uh, we have gotten ourselves into a very tricky position where the only option for the United States would then be to return to threats of military action and do so in a context in which neither South Korea nor China would be supportive of that direction which would be the most perilous course for the United States of just about anything. That's an interesting point, which I suppose gets at deterrence theory, which is to what extent does the U.S. need to make clear that it is prepared to go to war? That's a very complicated question because the United States saying that it's prepared to go to war is not the same as North Korea believing that we are prepared to go to war. Uh, it would not surprise me if North Korea took seriously the prospect of some limited military strikes. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, that, that balance between threat and attraction, the, the idea that there are bad consequences for North Korea if it doesn't compromise has got to be part of the equation. But I've always believed that that message could be much more powerfully sent with the prospect of either economic punishments or, as Bruce has emphasized, informational strategies aimed at North Korea rather than military strikes, which, first of all, I'm not sure they're credible, those threats. Um, it's not clear if South Korea and China would go along. And we have to remember, China has a military alliance with North Korea, the wording of which is more uncompromising in terms of the promises made than the American alliance with South Korea. Not that we wouldn't honor our alliance, only that 
if there is a situation where the United States takes what is believed to be unprovoked military attack uh, on North Korea, China is pledged to come to their aid. Unprovoked sounds like a key word. Well, that is the key word, and this is where China, over the last couple of years, has been looking for every nook and cranny to make clear to North Korea that there are a lot of circumstances that would not fall under their security treaty. But a circumstance in which South Korea and China are saying that diplomacy is still underway, there's no need for military action, and the United States strikes anyway, that the China might feel no uh, choice but to declare that the alliance is in effect at a moment like that, and then we've bought conflict with China. And, and the Chinese have actually said very specifically that if North Korea were to attack South Korea, their alliance is off, that the North is on its own. But if the U.S. attracts, attacks North Korea, then the Chinese will support the North Koreans. So, so there actually has been a commitment. That's why we get driven towards the information operations. North Korean defectors will tell you that the North Koreans do not believe that the U.S. will ever do a military attack. But they do worry that we will attack with information, where the information can simply be information about the outside world. The North Korean regime is very concerned that its elites especially learn about what they're missing by being in North Korea and what they ought to have and what's really going on in the world. I believe we do have a call. Uh, Philmina, if you want to uh, patch our first caller in. Perfect. The first question comes from the line of Lynn. Hi, this is uh, Lynn Turk, Pacific Century Institute. Good morning. I, I, yeah, I was impressed by Mr. Dobbins' comment that maybe we have to open the aperture here. I mean, listening to what has been said, it's you're kind of down in the tactical weeds. If this, if that, and before, and what if, and if, shouldn't we test the very proposition that Kim Jong-un has made, which is, uh, I'm launching a new era. <laughs> Things are not how they used to be. For, for my own reasons, I want to change, I want big changes. And, uh, the order in Singapore is a new relationship with the U.S., a peace regime, and denuclearization. And I don't think that's by accident. And he only has one card to play, so it's got to be played to make when he knows he's got everything he wants. And I don't know why we... I mean, to me, Pompeo went in tactical to Panmunjom, and the North Koreans expected strategic, uh, which is what they thought they heard in Singapore. Uh, is anybody looking at this as an opportunity? If the North Koreans want a new peace regime for the Korean Peninsula, shouldn't we define the peace regime we want first and then say, you know, to get this, uh, you have to denuclearize. Instead, we're, we're just hung up on this denuclearization thing, and when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Nobody asks the fundamental question, what's the new peace regime that allows Kim Jong-un to make the change he wants, he says he wants to make? Well, actually, it was Mike Mazar who talked about opening the aperture, um, but I agree um, oh. that that's uh, desirable. 
Um, I think, as I said, the problem is is sequencing uh, in an atmosphere of complete distrust. Um, we don't trust them because they haven't delivered on their promises in the past. They don't trust us in part because we haven't delivered on all our promises in the past. Um, and so the only way this is going to work is uh, micro steps in which we do a little bit, they do a little bit, we do a little bit, they do a little bit. Um, uh, and that, in a sense, is, is what Pompeo is doing. Now, he's beginning, undoubtedly, with the hard line that you do everything and then we'll do what we promise. Um, but he's going to have to come off that. I think in terms of defining the peace regime, uh, the Panmunjom document uh, does a pretty good job of defining how that would work between the two Koreas. It, ha it, it has a, a list of about 20 different items. And, and these have been uh, agreed in the past as well. Um, I do think that it's a mistake for us to uh, have the U.S. do the nuclear negotiation and leave to South Korea the, everything else. Uh, I think it would be better to uh, have a, a U.S.-South Korean joint effort defining uh, normalization in the relations or, or a peace regime, if you like, um, and holding out uh, uh, elements of it um, in exchange for elements of uh, denuclearization. Uh, but I do think a step-by-step -step process is, is, is necessary. And I think moving on the, on the peace regime first and denuclearization later pretty much robs uh, North Korea of the incentives and pressures uh, necessary to actually assure denuclearization. Any follow-up yeah. from Len or yeah, I think Mike? I think you've got you've got a situation where um, we do have to take the small steps initially. That you've got to start trying to build trust. Um, the North Koreans have already done indoctrination to their senior leaders that they have no intent of getting rid of their nuclear weapons. That's gone on, from what I am told, by pretty reliable sources out of North Korea. So um, the North's got to adjust. They've got to adjust the mindset of their people. We've got to give them a chance. Now, the challenge we face is, if this is not going to just be a peace agreement, it's going to be a peace treaty, it has to be approved by the Senate, by two-thirds of the Senate. That means both Republicans and Democrats. The Democrats have already defined what their position is, what they want for a true and lasting peace, which is what the April 27 agreement calls for. Um, and it's very rigorous. Nuclear weapons, chem-bio, conventional weapons, etc., etc. Um, so just as Jim suggests, we've got to do a better job of establishing what we think should be probably a part of a first stage peace agreement, a second stage, and a third stage, uh, some kind of incremental approach that can get us to real peace, but um, doesn't put such a threshold up there that we keep crashing into it. Yeah, broadly speaking, I mean, I, I think I, I agree entirely that, that we should view it as an opportunity and, and kind of go big. And part of the reason why is not only, I think, because of the nuclear issue, um, but also because uh, of some of the other work we've done here on the conventional military operational aspects in Korea. Uh, it was one thing to think about the U.S. military role there when we're dealing with a conventionally armed North Korea, 
and the basic situ- the basic contingency we're worried about is an all-out North Korean attack on South Korea. That's fairly straightforward to, to, to deter and to play that role. When we're looking at a nuclear-armed North Korea and then a range of different uh, missions, uh, if North Korea were to begin artillery strikes against Seoul, having to go into North Korea and clear out some of that artillery, dealing with non-combatant evacuation, dealing with loose nuclear weapons, uh, potentially uh, having to think about offensive strikes on North Korean nuclear capabilities, you are really beginning to stretch the capabilities of many aspects of the U.S. military with rules like that against a nuclear-armed adversary. And, of course, the damage would be enormous. So before we have to do those kind of missions, uh, I think we have a moment now, and this is one of the reasons why I've sort of been happy to see the, the broader approach to say, you know, if, if in 10 years we're in an incredibly tense standoff with a nuclear-armed North Korea, with the risk of war constantly present, as opposed to a 10-year future where we have diplomatic relations and North Korea is still there, they maybe have some kind of residual nuclear capability, but there's not really a day-to-day threat of war, uh, and the outside investment is having the effect that Bruce is talking about on their society, that's a much better strategic future for us, particularly at a moment when we are entering into a decade or more of more intense competition with Russia and especially China globally. We don't need uh, a Korean contingency to distract U.S. attention and resources. So to the extent that we can view this moment as an opportunity to pursue some kind of a peace regime that wouldn't maybe achieve all of our denuclearization goals immediately, but at least some of them. The trick, though, as as both Jim and Bruce have emphasized, is the tactical and the strategic are inextricably linked. And you can't really get to the strategic without at least getting some process started on the tactical nuclear stuff. And uh, I think as Jim nicely laid out, the trick is to get beyond the initial absolute positions of each side and start that process. And once the process has begun... I think then we can come very big with some of these strategic initiatives. So I I get the impression that you're not as concerned about this uh, disconnect between the tactical and the the strategic that Len was alluding to in his question. Well, I'm very very concerned about it in the sense that it it could continue to obstruct. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has been the main thing obstructing further progress. So the U.S. insistence on uh, sort of more absolute immediate steps, and as Jim's laid out, that we have to see a great deal of nuclear progress before we'll start anything. I mean, that was uh, part of the problem with the U.S. implementation of something called the Agreed Framework in the 1990s, which was already a significant constraint on North Korean nuclear developments. Part of the problem was we were waiting so long for that agreement to have what we viewed as its complete effects before agreeing to things like uh, intersections as a basis for ultimate diplomatic relations or more completely open economic ties that, I mean, the North Koreans were cheating on the edges, to be sure, but they also got frustrated and thought they weren't getting out of it what they wanted to. So there's this perpetual problem of mistrust, as Jim says, and our hesitation to move in the direction of some of the bigger strategic actions until we are completely satisfied on the tactical nuclear stuff. And the question now is, over the next few months to a year, can we get enough progress on the tactical nuclear side 
so that we can maybe break out of that box and take some of the bigger strategic moves that I think would benefit us. Right now, I'm, I think it's a coin flip. I'm really not sure. Lynn, that was a great question. Thank you very much. That's good answers. <laughs> uh, we have an email from Alexander. How do ongoing negotiations with North Korea interact with broader issues between China and the U.S., in particular the trade war? Uh, badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it may be possible that both Washington and, and Beijing can, uh, can sequester these issues and treat them separately, um, but uh, it's certainly unusual to pick a big fight with an essential partner at the beginning of a major negotiation, and that's what the president has done. And is it a coincidence that at that very moment, China seems to have relaxed its uh, stance regarding North Korea? Uh, I, I mean, first of all, they were relaxing it on the edges. Um, uh, I think it's an exaggeration to say that uh, pressure has been withdrawn, uh, but, uh, but, it's, but it's less intense. Um, and I think that's more that's less a result of the trade war and more a result of Trump's uh, statement that North Korea no longer presents a threat. The South Korean uh, moves to, to significantly improve their relationship with the North. Um, you know, for a while, there was a rather unrealistic fear that North Korea was going to become an American ally, um, that, that Kim and Trump were going to uh, bond. Uh, and uh, and China would lose uh, uh, whatever asset uh, North Korea presents. Uh, this was pretty uh, absurd, but it clearly was a worry in, uh, among some Chinese uh, officials and uh, and experts. Um, uh, and so um, I think that's more of a factor than the trade war. But the trade war certainly isn't helping. Any follow-up? I would just say another way that it, that the, the China role plays here uh, is as this unfolds, it is not inconceivable that if the United States and South Korea get to a serious disagreement, I mean, as Bruce has laid out, you have an administration in South Korea, the Moon administration, which is progressive nationalist that came into office promising better relations with North Korea and has no interest in military action on the peninsula. And depending on how this evolves... Uh, it is not inconceivable that the opportunity will be created for China to step in as a peacemaker and as the new arbiter of security on the Korean Peninsula if the United States pushes other actors into a corner, as it seems at the moment, um, all too happy to do. And, and China had tried to take a role for some period of time with this freeze-for-freeze freeze proposal. Um, the irony is what they chose to have us freeze was not symmetric. The, they allowed the North Koreans to continue military exercises while restricting ours. Uh, and our exercises were always timed so that if North Korea prepared in an exercise, their troops were ready to go, and they decided to come south, that we would be prepared to deal with it. So there is some risk that we've taken by suspending the exercises without the North. It seems to me that one thing the president could say now is to go back to Kim Jong-un and say, I gave you this, now let's go to a real freeze for freeze. Does that mean we stop our missile tests? Um, that we stop our theater missile tests, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we have a set of relationships that we've built with the Russians and the Chinese. We're not going to let North Korea determine what our strategic nuclear inventories are going to be. We'll let them deal with theater issues about whether we put things into South Korea, potentially. Yeah. Yeah, that is one of the, I mean, Bruce makes great points, but that's one of the risks, I think, of the summit, the way they conducted it, is that at least North Korea is going to claim that they mm-hmm. are now on an equal footing with the United States. This has been an, you know, a yep. central goal of their propaganda right for decades. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that the, some of the next phases of negotiation, just as Bruce is implying, they start to demand remarkably and kind of ridiculously equivalent levels of restraint because they are now equivalent to the United States as a strategic actor. And even if they don't fully believe it, they're going to set the bar in a place where we're going to end up fighting it back for years to the point where we were. Bruce, can I go back to the point on the alternative to military? And you have talked about information operations perhaps needing to be stepped up. What do you mean by information operations? Well, you'll probably remember that uh, North Korea's deputy ambassador to the UK, Young Ho, defected a couple of years ago. He was uh, came to the U.S. and spoke to Congress, and he said, uh, essentially... Uh, look, uh, you all like military operations as, a, as a, an alternative for dealing with situations like this. Let me tell you, information used against the regime will be far more powerful, far less costly, and far less risky. So what kind of things are we talking about? We know North Korea is paranoid about discussions of human rights. They really hate human rights discussions. So perhaps what we need to do is be prepared to tell North Korea, sure, you can call us gangsters after the next uh, discussion, but if you do, we're going to raise your human rights again, and we're going to discuss it openly in public to make it clear that you need to rein that in. Um, Kim's history is not particularly good. I mean, you look at him just as an individual. He's not a starving North Korean like the vast majority of the North Koreans. Simply describing his lifestyle could undercut his position. Describing it how? By broadcasting more K-pop videos, sending balloons across with uh, some kind of propaganda? Uh, the, the North Koreans appear to have increasing access on the Internet. Uh, the access is available at places like Kim Il-sung University, where the elites would be able to get it. It's available in different government ministries and so forth. So... There's things that we could do over the Internet, not to reach the common person in North Korea, but the elites we could reach. And they're really the people that I think he's most concerned about putting pressure on him. Something else we haven't talked too much about is the specifics of the nukes themselves. Uh, How many does Kim Jong-un have? Do we know how far he could deliver them? And uh, do those issues matter? We, we really don't know for sure on any of this. The standard open discussion says North Korea's probably got somewhere between 15 and 60 nuclear weapons as of mid-2017. I haven't seen new updated estimates, but those would probably reflect the fact that it has also been said openly that North Korea can produce about 12 nuclear weapons a year. So... That doesn't mean they have, it just means they could. 
So the answer is we don't know how many. We know what they've tested. Most of the nuclear weapons they've tested have been very small, uh, not as big as the Hiroshima weapon. Only the last two seem to cross into that threshold, but the latest one is about 10 times as big. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really threatening development. It's big enough to erase a good part of a city, an airfield, a port. Um, so that's a change in his threat. And you feel confident that, that, that such a nuclear weapon could be delivered how far? Certainly to, to South Korea, to Japan, to... North Korea's chosen missiles as the means for delivery. And again, the answer there is we don't know for sure. But the size warhead they have demonstrated, they've actually shown pictures of it. If it's real, which it could be, then it probably goes on. Many of their theater ballistic missiles that could deliver to South Korea or Japan. Um, the question is, can they get it to the U.S.? North Korea tested two ICBM or three ICBMs last year. An ICBM is any missile with at least a 5,500-kilometer 5, uh, range. That doesn't get it to the continental United States. Only one of the three was pretty clear that it had enough payload to be able to reach the continental United States, and we don't know if it's got a warhead that could survive the kind of reentry that would be required to put a nuclear weapon down. So uncertainty, but Kim Jong-un did say last year after that final missile test that they had completed their program, they didn't need any more tests, they were ready to go with their ICBMs, and he's argued that he's been producing the transporter erector launchers and perhaps the missiles required to do that. What are the odds that the U.S. could shoot down such a missile? Well, we've put, we've put uh, 30 or so interceptors up in Alaska to be able to take on that task. If he shoots directly at the U.S., um, there's a reasonable chance that we could shoot them down, but certainly nothing certain. Um, you know, missiles like that have their problems when they haven't been really tested against the real thing in the past. And so uh, hopefully they would, but you can't bet on it. And back to the number of missiles, and, and maybe this is one for you, Mike, is does it matter whether they have 15 or 60 or 90, or one missile? So one sort of useful comparison to keep in mind in terms of open source estimates is that within a decade, North Korea could be a bigger nuclear power in terms of pure numbers than Great Britain. Now, the, the capability of its weapons would not be the same, but uh, it's, it's moving toward well over 100 deployed nuclear uh, weapons, if not constrained. And the, the main difference to me is if you've got 10 or 15 weapons, you're going to think of them primarily for regime survival. You're going to keep them... Uh, to These are ace, an ace up, aces up the sleeve. Basically, a last-ditch kind of defense. Mm -hmm. so, so if the United States is invading North Korea and on the way to Pyongyang, you, you, know, you reserve them for that moment because if you parcel them out in dribs and drabs, you might not have an ultimate deterrent left. If you've got 120 nuclear weapons um, deployed uh, across a range of delivery systems, different kinds of ballistic missiles small ships, uh, micro-submarines, you have the potential in a crisis, in the build-up to a war, during a war, 
to use them in a variety of ways. Now, there's always the potential that North Korea would believe that any use of nuclear weapons would call down an immediate all-out U.S. strike, in which case they would be deterred from using them. Uh, I think it's at least plausible that as they get a bigger and more flexible arsenal in a future crisis where, for example, the United States made the decision to begin flowing forces to Korea to prepare for a war in a scenario that would look to the North Koreans like the Gulf War of 1990, and which they've been very clear publicly in saying they're not going to wait for that to play out, uh, that they might choose to use nuclear weapons against ports. Some of them. Some, right. Like a small number of nuclear weapons against ports or other things, or even for demonstration effect, like a, an electromagnetic pulse um, attack. Uh, and once that happens, just, then you, you get... just unpack that? How do you deploy the nuclear weapon in a different way if you want it to be an electro electromagnetic pulse? You, you, you detonate it higher up? It's where you set it off. I mean, you can use the... I mean, yeah. you, there are certain deployment means you couldn't really use effectively for that purpose. Couldn't use an aircraft, base. for example. Wouldn't right. be high enough. Right, right. So you need missiles, basically. But yeah, it's it's an air it's an air burst. Um, but you know, U.S. policy uh, in, in in unclassified war games we conduct, you know, sometimes U.S. players will say any use of a nuclear weapon by North Korea crosses a threshold, and then we're into all-out war. If you're a U.S. president and they've done something that's been an attack on one port, you know, but they still have a hundred nuclear weapons left aimed at Seoul and Tokyo, and you know you wouldn't get them all in a first strike. Are you going to go all out in your response? Probably not. So I think North Korea is buying for itself with this size and flexibility of an arsenal. The capability of conducting various kinds of nuclear coercive operations along a spectrum of escalation that would be tremendously dangerous uh, to deal with. And raising the risk of proliferation, because if they have 100 nuclear weapons, they may be prepared to sell some, which they wouldn't be prepared to do with three or five. Right. I would like to pose a last question, which is, what are your predictions for what will happen, not what ought to happen, and who ought to do what? What do you think is going to happen next? I think we'll start down a path and not reach the end. I think each side will be disappointed with the other. Each side will charge the other with having not fulfilled uh, commitments, and the, uh, and the effort will unravel as it has at least four times in the past. That's the safe prediction. Now, maybe it'll be different this time. Um, maybe Kim Jong-un is different from his father and grandfather. Uh, Trump is certainly different from all of his predecessors, um, for better or worse. Um, uh, and so, uh, but history tells us to be skeptical and pessimistic. But I think the key there is, as we've suggested earlier, You've got to take some incremental steps that start to change that pattern. Otherwise, you're pretty well guaranteeing that pattern. Bring us home, Mike. Well, it, there's no good place to bring us home to on this issue. I agree entirely with, with Jim and Bruce. And I think the question then becomes, as it begins to unravel, how does the United States respond to that and how do others respond to that? And uh, I, th it, it's to me, fairly likely that we would get back to the point of U.S. making threats of military action again in the next six months or so. And the dangerous thing at that moment is 
if South Korea publicly or privately makes very clear to the United States that it is not on board with that, how does this administration respond? And is there a risk that we would begin to lay down ultimatums that South Korea better get on board or we're leaving the peninsula? And if that were to happen, it would change the security dynamic in Asia permanently. Very good. We'll be watching closely. Thank you, Jim, Bruce, and Mike, for your time and insights. Thank you to our Policy Circle and RAND Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you'd like more information on RAND research about Korea or to listen to a podcast of this call, I would encourage you to visit RAND.org, or you can contact us directly at policy underscore circle at RAND.org. And mark your calendars for the next call in the series. July 25th, we are discussing media coverage and the effects of celebrity suicides. This concludes our call. Thank you for participating. Have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.